Hello, welcome to Unprecedented Women, the podcast sharing incredible stories of women who paved their own way in the world of work. Stories that will inspire you to have the confidence to be visible, take action and to play big, because what's the best that can happen? I'm Jess Audsley, we're all pioneers and we are all unprecedented. Today, I'm welcoming Kalila Jones onto the podcast. And like many women I now treasure in my life, I met Kalila in a female founders networking group. And Kalina is the founder and owner of the award-winning boutique marketing agency for startups and small businesses called Careful Feet Digital. And she's also the creator of Dime, which is a tech platform that automates digital marketing. In addition, she has a PhD and many other accolades to her name, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So welcome onto the podcast, Kalila. Thank you so much for having me. I'm blushing from that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I'm so excited to hear your story today and, and frankly, to get to know you better and understand your journey to becoming the entrepreneur that you are today. So take us back to the beginning. You live in London. You run an agency in both the UK and the US, and you're also from the US. Mm -hmm. So tell us more. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., but I kind of always knew I wanted to, to get out. Um, D.C. is a great place to, to be from, but just from a very young age, I felt like there was something more for me. Um, and when I was a teenager, I traveled to London and just immediately was like, yep, that's the goal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move there one day. So I moved here um, oh, over 10 years ago now um, to get my, my master's degree. And then I, I yin-yanged back and forth between the US and the UK for a couple of years, but, but came back for my PhD and then my, met my husband and stayed. And really the entrepreneurial part of my journey is an outgrowth of that. Um, I always wanted flexibility in my life, flexibility to be able to, yeah, kind of make these changes between um, the US and the UK across the pond, as it were. And so I created this life and this business that that really allowed me to do that. So uh, before you're settled in London, which we we both love very much, I lived there for 10 years as well, but uh, but now I'm in Sweden. Sad our time didn't cross over. (laughs) Oh, yeah, me too. But we'll see each other soon, I hope. Yeah. You traveled. You're a bit of a a digital nomad because you traveled to over 20 countries whilst working as a freelancer. Tell us more about that because that's a a digital nomad dream for many. Yes, I did do that. So um, after I I worked for two years uh, right after university, I like I said, had always had my eye on London, but I had student debt and I was quite young at the time. I was 21 coming out of university and just didn't have the mental model of, oh, I can break out of this nine to five mold. I really was quite frankly, quite scared. So I um, did the kind of traditional working thing for two years, but from the very beginning, from the first day, I always thought, okay, I'm gonna pay off my student loans. I'm gonna save up a little money. I'm going to move to London and I'm going to travel while I'm in London. I have that that one year to do that. Um, and on the side, I'll just get my master's degree. So that was kind of always the, <laughs> the mental model I set up. Um, and when I, when I got here, and that was after working really hard nine to five for two years and on the side, uh, freelancing, and that was a big part of why I started freelancing was to pay off my debt a little bit faster and to save up money to move a little bit faster. Um, so when I got here, I was like, oh, I have one year to, to make it happen. So I was freelancing to support basically my, my travel addiction. And I, 
I think that first year I went to over 10 different countries. And then, as I wow. mentioned, I, d- I decided to stay to get my PhD and my MBA and all these other things. And so through that time, I, I traveled even more. It was great. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds amazing. Uh, but I'm, I'm a little bit fascinated with you as well, because a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they give up the academic path to to give it all and more for to be mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. And you seem to have balanced the two. Tell us more about that. I think that probably naturally I'm quite introverted, which I think a lot of people who know me would be very surprised by. And I'm very surprised by <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I think a lot of people are. <laughs> and so the the academic part of things, the the research and um, yeah, the, the kind of being in my own mind and being very, I suppose, um, philosophical about things really appeals to me. And as I've gotten a little bit older, I've realized that I need to balance um, the very extroverted. I'm, I'm very good at selling, for example, but that takes a lot of, of energy for me. So I need to balance that. I need to balance the leader that I am with kind of more um, activities like research, reading, writing. Um, and so that's why I, I still keep my toe dipped in that pond. I do quite a bit of teaching and I'm actually working on a book right now. And that's really almost as fun for fun. I think people are like, what? That's fun for you, but that's fun for me. And it, it kind of balances the, it's the yin to my yang in terms of the energies that I bring to the table. Wow, that's super exciting. Can you tell us anything about the book at this point or is yes, it all? Yes, yes, yes. So I'm using my um, my PhD, which was um, about the the emergence of media. I'm really interested in, in how media has basically evolved from, you know, the printed press um, all the way to like a tweet. Uh, but I'm kind of applying that same focus to the history of women working. So looking at how we started as, you know, just taking care of our, our children in a in a cave, basically, um, all the way to now balancing and juggling and the perception that we need to have it all. So I'm really excited to to bring that to the table. Hopefully that will get published at the end of this year. That sounds very interesting. It sounds like it's read that's right up my alley. So let's talk a little bit more about, you mentioned that you started out in in your career as sort of traditional nine to five, which I guess was a little bit more than, than nine to five. How did you go from that to the entrepreneur that you are today? Was the freelancing your path to, to that? It was. So that's really what started things. It was I had just gotten the job offer, and this was um, in another uh, deep recession back in 2008. I'd gotten a job offer, which I was so grateful for, right, because a lot of my my classmates at the time just didn't have that. But um, it's funny, obviously, being a, a college kid, I was looking at the salary like 40K a year, I'm rich. And then looking at <laughs> the taxes coming out, my student loan payment coming out and being like 40K a year, I don't know, like, how am I going to survive? <laughs> So I started freelancing pretty much immediately upon getting that job offer because I realized that if I wanted to get to London, if I wanted to travel, I needed to, you know, make a little bit, make a little bit more money. And so I started by, would you believe this, writing articles for $10 an article. Um, wow. Back in the day when content mills were a thing like eHow, Livestrong, writing those articles. And yeah, here I am 13 years later. It, it feels kind of surreal looking back at it. Um and how, how I started. Yeah. 
I saw I saw an article where you talked about that and you said that you wouldn't say no to anything. You kind no. of in the beginning you kind of took took on on Everything. any job that anybody yeah that would give you. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk us through that and what your thinking was and and would you do that again? Yeah, uh, I definitely would not do that again. That is a one-way road to burnout. <laughs> yeah. But at the time I was a lot younger and frankly I was just really hungry. I really wanted to get out of my nine to five job. I mean, I entered it knowing that that was just a means to an end. And so anything that someone would ask me to do, I would just be like, okay, let's throw this to the wall and see if it sticks. I have very specific goals about how much I need to make to be able to move to London. Let's take it on. Um, And like I said, I think that now I probably would burn out. But at the time, I really didn't because at the time, I felt like, okay, every $10 article that I write every time that someone pays me $100 a month to write 100 tweets. I mean, we're talking, looking back at that, I'm like, wow, I can't believe that people paid so, so poorly. Um, But you know, every little project that I take, that's me getting one step closer to my ultimate goal. Mm, Very goal focused. Very goal focused. So you go from from freelance to sort of the 15 people that you work with in Careful Feet Digital now. And there's there's loads of people that are probably interesting in kind of that scaling journey. How did you do it? What what role was the first one that you hired and how did you build it from there? Oh, such a good question. Um, I'll preface this by saying I probably made every single mistake in the book. (laughs) Um, And a big part of that is because I lacked the networks. I lacked the um, mentors probably that could have made this easier. And I think that that's two pronged, right? One is um, I'm an immigrant. I'm a woman of color. And I come from a family where the entrepreneurial journey is not really something that anyone else has done. So I just didn't have that innately, but also I'm quite stubborn. And I think sometimes uh, I've learned over the years that I should probably just hold up my hand and ask for help rather than be like, I know how to do this myself uh, because I don't. But um, yeah, I what really happened is that towards the end of my PhD, I realized that I had essentially too many clients, too much work, great problem to have on, on in some respects. But obviously, um, if the quality of the work that I'm doing is going to suffer because I'm just too overwhelmed, then that's, that's quite bad. So at the time, I decided to hire someone to come in and basically take over the execution of a lot of the client work that I was doing. So I would still be hired to do the strategy, but then rather than offer for to do all of the execution of the strategy, I said, okay, I'm going to hand that off to somebody else. And that's really how it started, was working in very close partnership with one other person. And then very quickly after the first hire, I felt comfortable enough to do it, to have a second hire. So for quite a long time, it was just me and then two other people. And I don't really want to even call them assistants because they really sat equal at the table with me. It was just that we had very different functional roles. Um, but that was a very good step in the right direction, A, in giving me confidence in my business model. And there were a lot of nights where I stayed up like, what if all my clients disappear tomorrow? I, I'm so nervous. I'm you know employing people. Their livelihoods are in my hands. There was a lot of those kind of thoughts. So doing that very small um, gave me a little bit more confidence there. But it also gave me more confidence in terms of being a leader and having the clarity of how to build a business and what the next steps were and who to add um, really was. And I, I make it sound as if I was clear on that 100% all the time. That is absolutely not what it was. But over time, I was able to to grow in that way. So how did you step into your own 
leadership when you started hiring people and scaling and building? Because I find that that's, to me, one of the things that I kind of am scared of, mm-hmm. because I want to step into this kind of leadership role very consciously and really be everything that all those shitty bosses frankly that I've had throughout the years are not and be a champion for women did you then kind of go to a coach and create a network and do those things that you you hadn't done early on or I did I had a business coach I worked with from very early on and a big part of what we worked on was um, my leadership capabilities, which is very interesting to me because I had hired her for completely different, <laughs> for completely different reasons. But we really did focus on that because one of the things that um, I think is interesting between being a leader for your own business and maybe being a leader in other circumstances, if you are a boss at, or a manager at some another organization, but it's it's not your own, is that it's it's a little bit more multifaceted, or I have found it to be a little bit more multifaceted because my business is me, right? And so I have to be this outward facing um, leader for potential clients and stakeholders, but then also internally, I need to be a leader as well. And the two things don't always go hand in hand. So when I'm facing outward, I need to be very self-assured. I need to be obviously selling a lot. And that word has a bad connotation, but we can talk about that a little bit later if we have time. I'm going to really stick to it. I have to be in sales mode um, and all of the things that that entails. But internally, I, I thought that I had to be the same type of leader. And that's just not the type of leader that I am. I think actually... Um, being very vulnerable, telling people when, for example, like, hey, I I had a, a surgery fairly recently. I'm getting a surgery. I'm not feeling well. And that I am a person at the end of the day. That's not necessarily something that I would do with clients, but that's something that I found that being this more humanistic person that people can really relate to has helped so much for our team's um, sense of self, for the collaboration that we all have having this open door policy. And I feel like our company is, has really benefited from, from that approach and from the leadership skills that I've brought to the table. But that's something that I've had to refine and really learn over the years. It's not something that is, is natural to me, that type of leadership. Mm. But it's also something really important because what you're doing is that you're leading by example and, and inadvertently then creating a culture you know, where you're allowing others to be vulnerable mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's that's really beautiful. And, and I wish more companies were like that. So we're, we're here, we're doing a CFD, you know, you're leading this company, leading this organization, but then you have an idea that then turns into something called Dime. Yes. <laughs> Tell us more about that. I was walking in the streets of Amsterdam and I just had been thinking for quite a few months, you know, that a a digital marketing agency is amazing. That is my life, my baby. I love watching it grow, but it's only as scalable as the man hours that can go into it, right? So we get more clients, we need to hire more people um, to, you know, serve those clients. And I wanted to think about how we could scale a business where we could do a little bit more growth without um, without the ensuing man hours. And that's where the idea for Dime really came is I just, I remember I was like walking this beautiful spring morning and I was just like, ah, that's it. We automate 
what our agency services are right now. And so that's where, where Dime comes in. Dime automates social media posting. Um, so essentially what, what we do is we've built an AI algorithm that not only can search the internet for great content, it can also crawl your pages and pull out things like snippets of blog entries, case studies, things like that. It creates social media posts around that. So that's both the imagery as well as the actual written text. And then it identifies the best social media channel to post to and the best time as well. Wow, that sounds incredibly time-saving. So how do you do that? How do you run an agency at the same time as you know creating this, this startup within the business? How did you fund that AI development and things like that? So very fitfully, <laughs> I would say. Um, initially, I thought, oh, these two things go, go together super well. I was going to say like peanut butter and jelly, but I... I realize that for European listeners, peanut butter and jelly do not go well um, <laughs> together. Um, but initially, yeah, I thought that they went very well together, but it's two completely separate businesses, two completely separate business models, um, even though obviously the expertise that has been developed over the years through the agency and then even before that working as a freelancer obviously are helpful. Building a tech product is uh, very, very different than building building an agency. What we have been lucky enough um, to do is because the agency is quite quite further along than Dime, the agency I would say is kind of out of startup phase and we're, we're really scaling, is we've been able to take the profits from the agency and put that towards the development of Dime. And we also have really good um, mentors now and legal and accounting advice that's helped us um, set up a, a business structure so that we can, yeah, for example, move funds around very easily, move resources around between the two businesses very easily. But um, I would have, I did need to build Careful Feet Digital before starting Dime. I did need to have these experiences, not just to build a better product, but to build a better business. Mm. We know that this horrific examples of, of venture capital and uh, what it's like to be a, f a woman founding a company and trying to get investments. In Sweden, the figure is 1%. So 1% of all uh, venture capital go to female founded businesses, which is, it's excruciatingly <laughs> bad. I spoke to somebody the other day who told me something I did not know that in the drinks industry in the UK, for example, 46% of businesses are female founded, but get 1% of the funding. Now, I'm sure this is, you know, has got very many layers, but I'm really, really interesting since you've got the experience as an entrepreneur when it comes to funding and being in rooms with people who are not like you, why is it like this? And what do you think we can do about it? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've been experiencing for uh, pretty much the entire time, my entire working life. Um, my earliest jobs in the marketing industry were in tech startups that were going for their Series A and then Series B funding. And I was always invited in the room, which um, in hindsight, I really appreciate um, the people who invited me into those conversations. A lot of times it was just to listen in and learn, but I was always the only person of color. So I think that the, the first problem here is that um, uh, it's it tends to be a boys club. And also I think that we need to point out that it's typically like a white 
a white men's club, right? Um, totally. So it's absolutely very, fully agree. Yes, it, it's very very much focused on. Um, I think that those mental models as well. So the way that people think, the way that they approach a pitch, the way that they approach their business growth and their business model is very much. Um, I, I think that there are silos in thinking, or people have blinders on and only the way that the people that you are talking to um, is, is appreciated. So I always was like, oh, wow, investors only want to talk to me if I'm going to 10x their investment. And that's just because this is the model that white men tend to appreciate for, for whatever reason. And yeah, that's, I think, a, a multi-layered conversation. Um, yeah, very much so. But I, I think that this is a, a huge problem and something that I've seen both, like I said, in other companies that I'm a part of and my own company as well. It, it starts with do I know anybody who can get me those meetings? Because a lot of VCs still have a, you need to be recommended by another founder or a mentor to even get a meeting. Um, actually though, I have been lucky enough that I've sent out cold um, intros and gotten meetings. So then though, the, the issue is, am I pitching in the way that these individuals expect me to pitch? Um, and if I'm pitching in that way is the business model and the way that I want to run my business compatible with the way that they want my business to be run because at the end of the day, they'll be essentially my business partner. So this is a very multi-layered issue and it starts with, I think, the silos that we, um, as people, just I think generally put ourselves in and the fact that VC, angel funding, just equity funding in general is really dominated by a specific group of people and they bring all of their, you know, background, thought processes, all of that to the fore with them. And I don't think that people can be blamed for that. It's just what can we do to fix that and to bring a little bit of fresh blood into that. Hence why in my agency, we have 15 people from 12 different countries, because I look at that kind of um, industry as an example of something that's going to stagnate if they don't bring in new perceptions and new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things. Mm, that's really interesting. So you're, you're asking a very pertinent question there. What can we do? What can we do to get women of color, women in general, or people who are trans or whatever it may be, you know, intersectionalism, a seat at the table? Such a good question. And this is where, yeah, I always put my academic cap on like and like to think really a lot about this. I mean, I think the first thing is just having conversations like this and pointing it out. But at the same time, I'm a little bit over. Um, I think that a lot of brands and a lot of even female run VCs sit and point at the stats. But then they and, and so they say, Oh, we're talking about this. Oh, we're paying attention. Oh, we're surfacing the fact that there's a problem. But then no actual action goes in behind that. And that's kind of what I was getting at with talking about the the mental models that people bring to the fore. So everyone, I think, acknowledges now that there's a problem. The larger question is what to do about it, particularly when there's money at the table. So everyone says, oh, there's a problem, there's a problem. But if you can't sell an investor on the fact that you're going to 10x their investment, they don't they don't really care, to be quite frank, about your mm. background, about the color of your skin, about your gender, like they want their money. And so I think that what has to happen is, honestly, there has to be some kind of incentive and likely this has to come from the government um, for businesses to take a chance on companies that they feel will not 10x their investment. And the thing here that kind of gets me is that I think that a lot of times that is just 
that feeling is coming from, oh, you do not match the style of pitching that I'm used to, or oh, your deck is not aligned with the type of deck that I'm used to looking at, or your financial model is not one that I am familiar with. So I think that these kinds of incentives will actually start to make it so that people are a little bit more open to trying different things. And then when they see, oh, these new approaches do 10x my investment, I think it will make things so much easier and it will make that conversation so much easier. But without those incentives right now, I think that even though there's acknowledgement that this is an issue, people are scared to take action because they're not going to increase you know, their, <laughs> their money and that is their, their job at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it is a money, very much a money driven, yes, driven business. Exactly. And at the end of the day, there's got to be that times 10 situation. And if there's not, then but this I, I agree with you so much that it's there is so much more that can be done in terms of opening up for different ways of thinking on so many different levels. And one part of this is, of course, uh, investment firms or venture capital firms led by women who in mm-hmm. invests solely in women. How do you feel about going at it that way? Yeah, I, I've had some conversations with um, female founded and female funded VC firms because there's a lot of that movement in the space right now too yeah. where women get together and say, okay, we're going to invest in other women. Um, I do think that that is a really viable way if a business is looking for funding to go. The issue is that there's obviously going to be so much more demand than there is supply. Yeah. I mean, there I can count those firms like probably on two hands. And so I still would say that that's, uh, that's actually probably my um, big dream is to open my own um, VC firm and to invest in, in women of color. So I definitely don't want to denigrate that. But I just think that change has to happen more broadly across the space for it to really take root, like us relying on female-led and female-funded VC and angel um, networks are just not, it's not going to do enough. It's not going to be fast enough. I still think there would be massive inequality. There just aren't enough. No, it's very true. There's inequality across the board. And that leads me on to a a question around a recent study by FreshBooks. And these are are US numbers, but I'm pretty sure it's the same or similar in the UK and and in the rest of Europe. That shows that self-employed men earn on average 28% more than self-employed women. What do you think about that? Tell me. Um, I'm disgusted, but I'm not, I'm not super surprised. And I have a, I have a couple of things uh, with that. So one is that I think that this also comes from networks. A lot of self-employed women that I know tend to work with smaller organizations. And this is just me, right? I cannot speak to whether this is something that is statistically significant, but a lot of self-employed women that I know tend to work with smaller companies. And I'm going to make a guess here that most of those smaller companies tend to have smaller budgets, Mm -hmm. but they also are open, I think, to um, having a conversation around what compensation is right for that company if they really want to work with the company. Whereas a lot of self-employed men that I know tend to work with larger organizations and or Um, tend to be a little bit more strong in the value that they're bringing to the table and don't tend to um, negotiate as much on the rates that they're being paid. Mm, I I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah, we've been talking, we've talked about this before. I mean, I think that this is a, this is something that we, we actually, I'd love to talk about it more. I think about the the value that women perceive that they bring to the table. And I think this is a, something I want to talk a lot about in my book, that we are more um, 
won't, for whatever reason, to be more flexible on that than our male counterparts. There is something here, I think, that goes with confidence. And I think that there's a lot of preconceptions about confidence that it's sort of something or myths really that you've been born with it either you have it or you don't particularly when it comes to women and also women's difficulty in talking about their achievements and research actually shows and this I find so super scary is that women who talk about their achievements we sort of ask them as a community to take as a society to take their rightful place and we urge them to do it and then when they do research shows that neither men nor women really like that. And that to me is like, wow, that I've really had to look at myself in the mirror and be like, where do I stand on that? And I think that that's, you know, that's scary. I think it's difficult and it's so multi-layered and, and very difficult to put your finger on. But I think there's something about charging that women struggle with. Cause I see that in the, in the networks that I'm in, how people undersell themselves. And that's how how female networks can be so empowering because there's people there cheering you on and saying, you need to up your prices. Yeah. And not just cheering you on, but really you say, like being that mirror that maybe you need to, to look yeah. into to say, what you bring to the table is actually super valuable. And also one thing that I, I tend to think about a lot and tend to say is that if you undercharge, then you're doing not only yourself a disservice, but everyone else who works in your industry a disservice because that makes the conversation so much harder for the next person behind you to have when someone is comparing, oh, this person charged this, but you charge this, why is that? And it kind of feeds into this general perception sometimes of, oh, this type of service is worth X or this type of service is worth Y. So always think about that. Think about the fact that it's not just, um, you know, how things reflect on you, but your entire like industry and leaving that door open for the person behind you to have hopefully a conversation about their value in a more, you know, empowered, strengthened way. Absolutely. Uh, it's so important. And I think you're devaluing then an entire industry mm -hmm. potentially, exactly. and you're sort of, you know, devaluing it for everybody. Exactly. I also think that women tend, in my experience, tend to forget in their calculation of the value that they bring to the table, they devalue like previous experience. So I've got 20 years of experience in PR and communications across big companies and small companies. That's the value I bring to the table. You know, I know a lot about social media, digital marketing as well, but that all comes as a package. Mm -hmm. But women tend to, in general, at least around my age, kind of devalue the experience that they have had before. And and charged by the hour rather than packaging and devaluing their services in in ways like that. So I think it's also an important conversation to have that you're bringing your whole experience to the table. A hundred percent. And don't think that that's, um, you know, not something worth really, really touting. I think that a lot of times people look at things again, like in silos, like, oh, you're just offering social media, but you can say, oh no, but think about how that wealth of 20 years can really help your communication strategy and how I can really have insights to that, that's much more valuable than somebody who may not have that kind of strategic um, overarching communications experience. So definitely agree. Definitely agree. One saying that we both we both like is that a rising tide lifts yes, all boats. Love that. And what is it that we women can do in your mind to lift each other up and sort of 
support each other in this undeniably patriarchal society that we exist in. So one thing that really like grinds my gears is when I see men leave the door open for each other, but then like usher the other man into the room. And I'm talking about this in a very like allegorical sense. So we hear about this all the time. I think uh, even today I was reading how um, the the founder of Dyson was texting Boris Johnson about his tax situation. And it's just like, oh, come on. But men do tend to um, look at each other and say like, oh yeah, I'll make this introduction for you. Or, oh yeah, I'll give you this contract because like you were my, I don't know, frat brother or because we grew up down the street from each other. But women, I think, tend to look at things a little bit differently. And again, I hate talking in generalities, but um, so I'm only going to come from my experiences. I tend to look at people for the value that they bring to the table. And so even if you were my next door neighbor, sorry, old next door neighbors, like I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to like give you a job or, you know, uh, try and, and help you more if you are not actually qualified. Um, and I think that actually what we can do is start to a look at a definition of qualification in a different way that's something i've really been forcing myself to do and actually your previous comments about your like previous uh, experiences that's a really good place to start so if someone came to me and said oh well i don't have exactly the experience that you're looking for but i can bring x y and z to the table and i'm a fast learner i think that all of us can kind of start to think about okay can that actually be something that we can work with and help? Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is not thinking of each other as competition. I do tend to think that women look at things as, oh, there's only one pie and if, if one slice is gone, that's only leaving a certain amount of slices for, um, for myself. And I think that if we try and look at things in a more collaborative way, let's keep the door open and bring others into the room again. That's making it easier for everyone. So going back to what we were just talking about in terms of undervaluing yourself and how undervaluing yourself can undervalue a whole industry, the opposite is true, right? If you bring more women into the room with you, I think that that makes conversations much more easy to have. It also makes it easier if you want a connection to get one because there are more women in the room, right? So you can spread that around. That probably will make things like fundraising, getting more clients, all of this so much easier. So I think that that spirit of collaboration is really important. And I also think that looking at, at people for the totality of what they bring to the table is, is very important as well. I love that particularly the the part about looking at the person as a whole in the experience that they bring because there's plenty of examples uh in startups of people who have been given a shot and then excelled mm -hmm. massively without being necessarily yeah. qualified in the first place yeah. so um there's a lot there's a lot in there. Yes. I, I, I also like this thinking, I don't like the thinking, but I like the theory behind it, is that women subscribe more to a scarcity model. I agree with you there than men do. Men seem to feel, and this is also personal opinions, but in my mind, it's like when, when men see that there's an abundance of coaches on Instagram, they immediately think, wow, there's a business opportunity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could become a coach, you know, what's my USP? How do I niche myself here in this market? Whereas a woman sees that and goes, there's no point. There's too many. There's like, there's not enough for me and I can't, I can't compete with that. We immediately go into that scarcity mode. And I, I am interested in also what you're saying about networking because I find this very diff different in the different countries. So I have clients in Sweden and I have clients in the UK. 
And I see networking being so different in the two countries. Interesting. So people are much more open in the networks that I'm in, which are fundamentally female. I see women being much more open and supportive, whereas people, women in Sweden tend to subscribe much more to the scarcity idea so that if I don't completely like destroy my competitors, they will take from me. And I as a person don't, don't believe in that at all. I believe in abundance and I believe there's more than enough for everybody. And that I find hard. I find it difficult, you know, dealing with that kind of scarcity mindset when networking because people seem so, it's so important to protect what you have rather than sharing. And if you protect what you have rather than share, then you're not going to leave the door open for the woman who's coming in behind you. Exactly. I also think that there's um, different ways that we can look at protecting what what you have, right? And I think that we're thinking very... with blinders on I like I'm thinking my mental image right now is like a a horse in Central Park with the blinders on so that it can't see anything so it doesn't get scared but I think that if we think about what we have is like our our business and the fact that if we share anything with someone else they could come and take it then uh, yes this is the way that you would behave but if you think about protecting what you have from the fact that I could get more business if there are more women in my industry I could get more introductions if there are more women in my industry I could probably just grow professionally, if there were more women for me to talk to, then I actually think that that would change how we fundamentally do things and that we would collaborate more rather than be in a more competitive mindset. And so I always try yeah. and think that way. I I do think that it's, um, for example, I was telling someone, oh, I'm going on a, on a podcast where I'm speaking to a social media expert. And she was like, but wait, isn't that your competition? And I'm like, no, that's someone that I can collaborate with and that we can do great things together. So I think it's all about that mental model and how you bring that to the table. And that's something I think we all need to work on. I mean, myself included. Definitely. I mean, comparisonitis is something that we yeah. all fall victim to at, um, at at all the time, actually. And social media in itself exacerbates that immensely the kids that are growing up today they're always been connected there's been you know they're the connected generation can you imagine what it's like to be born basically with a phone in your hand i'm always like what (laughs) i literally cannot and my my mum bought ipads for my twin daughters when they were like two and i was like no and she's like yes why not you know (laughs) and I was exhausted having twins so I was like okay fine then you know and I think about that a lot and it's like as a mother you're trying to stop a tidal wave you cannot so you have Mm. to find different ways of like how do I teach my children how to deal with this and one of the problems I see with social media is that if we had like feeds that were telling us like constantly you're not enough you're not beautiful enough, you're not, you know, glamorous enough, you're not successful enough. We would turn those off, like logically for like human survival, you know, but we don't. Instead, we spend, you know, five to 10 hours with our phones in our hands a day. And that is to me, very scary development, because we need more of a diversified image in social media. And that's not going to come as long as the the age of the influencer is is not yet dead. I actually saw a really interesting video yesterday. I can't remember the name of the company, but basically there's a new company that um, is applying AI to image searches to bring um, more images of specifically black people traveling because that, that industry is so saturated with 
white influencers. So to bring images of black people traveling so that more black people, especially people of color or younger, can see themselves as travelers and can see that that's something that they yeah. can aspire to, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that as time goes on, more really interesting ideas like that will will help this. But that certainly is the case that it it's such it's an industry that's just so dominated by a very specific um, type of, of message. And that just needs to be that needs to definitely be it scares me a little bit as a mum as well, you know, that if we continue down this path that we're on, we're only going to have like one kind of, you know, image and we need more, we need more, we need more diversity so so badly and we need more different kinds of influences that, that we can identify with. But there's, there's positives as well. I think for a body image, social media has done lots of negative things, but there's also loads of positive body image influences Mm -hmm. out there, which I think is amazing. But what we need is to be really curate our feeds, don't we? We need to be really careful about what what we consume. And cut out anything that makes you feel not good. Like there are even certain people that I sometimes follow. And then sometimes when I feel like it's triggering me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to probably mute you for a while and then come back in a couple of months. Like I think that, that being quite, um, uh, yeah, very like clear about your boundaries of this doesn't make me feel so good today. So I don't need to see this is absolutely fine. And probably something that we all could, could work on. I know that I could definitely be a little bit more, um, mindful about the things that that make me feel bad and when you know my mind is playing tricks on me and making me feel bad for not being you know a certain weight or not having gotten funding or whatever it is that I see Mm. someone else doing that triggers me negatively we also have to remember that this is a a teeny tiny snippet of somebody's life that sometimes has been highly filtered and (laughs) edited and curated and you know the lot so it's not reality and and our brains just aren't equipped i don't believe our sort of prehistoric brains aren't really equipped to deal with these uh social media feeds yeah Yeah, agreed um so we're recording this and it's um been a day or so um after the verdict in the george floyd trial in minnesota uh, I cannot have you on the podcast without getting your angle and perspective and feelings feelings around this. Yes, I started to try and call it the Derek Chauvin trial because yeah. Derek Chauvin was on. Um, He's the one yeah, on, trial. on trial. Not George Floyd, and yeah, rest in peace, George Floyd. I was actually asleep when the verdict came down. My husband woke me up, and I have to say, even now, like I'm getting a little bit. Um, emotional because I I just don't understand why something like this has to happen for there to be a sense of accountability in mm. my country's uh, legal system. Um, something like this happens literally all the time. I mean, I, I was reading on the New York Times that while the jury um, was returning the verdict, a 15-year-old uh, Black girl was shot in Ohio. So this is just something that continues to happen. But the one thing that I will say that makes me really happy is that this now sets a precedent. And like most countries' legal systems, the U.S. is is highly precedential. Like, you need to have a case to refer back to to say, oh, this is why we've made this decision. Hmm. So this has set a precedent, at least, that hopefully will give cops a moment of pause before 
they wantonly disregard someone's life and make them think, oh, could I be put away in jail for the rest of my life? I really don't think that many um, law enforcement officials think that way in the U.S., particularly when it comes to um, the the lives and the rights of, of people of color. Mm. So I'm I'm happy is not the right word, but I'm at least grateful that that happened. But I also yeah. am still enraged that it took something like this to spy, to show a spotlight on this and for accountability to finally be, yeah, to be, mm. to be there. I don't even want to say justice being served because I, I don't, I don't know if I think that this is, this is justice. I, I don't think that justice can be served in this, in this case. No, that's very true. One of the things that at least gave me a glimmer of hope was hearing the president speak mm-hmm. uh, and hear him say that this is systematic and it's unacceptable and we have to do something about it. So I, as a European, I put great hope and I lived in the US, I lived in the US, I lived in, in New oh, York for two that. years. Yeah, okay. yeah, I did. And so for me, it's also very close to my heart and I have friends in America. So for me, it was very much like, at least let this then, if this is, what had to happen which regrettably as you quite rightly say if that was what it took then at least make it count yeah yeah exactly exactly so one thing that i love about you is that you say to me oh jess i'm an open book you can ask me anything anything. (laughs) so i wanted to ask you you've actively chosen not to have children and and that's kind of a controversial choice and something that I can see from an outside perspective that you get judged by. Yes, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think people are, you know, why are people reacting the way that they are react, reacting? And please enlighten me. Tell me how people react to this. I get a lot of people who um, are like quite taken aback by that. They say things like, oh, you'd be a great mom. Or like, oh, are you sure? Um, I also get a lot of people who I think... Um, are quite offended, actually. I think that particularly women think that um, my choice is somehow a reflection of like their their choice. Um, and so, yeah, especially now that a lot of my friends are starting to have kids, and I'm kind of sitting in the oh yeah, definitely, definitely not for me camp. They're they're kind of like, well, are you judging me for like my decisions? So. Um, uh, yeah, I think that actually we can draw that back to some of the other things we've been talking about, about this whole collaboration slash competition and just like the the mental models and the way that we bring things to the table. Um, as I've gotten a bit older and I'm in this part of my life now where I have to talk about this a lot because that's obviously a question I got married last year. So people are like, so when are the kids coming? And when I'm right. like, never, <laughs> never, it's not happening. Um yeah, I think that I, the biggest thing I would say is for like, that's the right choice for me. I, my business is my baby. I'm putting all of my life into that and I'm okay with that. But also people should not look at that as an indemnification of like their lifestyle choices. It's just what's right for me. Hmm. I think that's really interesting, actually, because I think we do that a lot, not just with this life choice, but just things in our lives in general. People immediately look at themselves and think that it has something to do with them. So I don't drink alcohol and people can get really, really, really uh, offended by that in a way, you know, and I realize that that has absolutely nothing to do with me and everything to do with them. So it's, it's what you bring out in people with the decisions that you make. It is not about your decision. It's what it brings out in them. Exactly. 
Mm-hmm. My friend, my best friend from high school, uh, she was the bridesmaid at our wedding. And she and I were very, very close. And then I got pregnant. And the friendship just went away. That must be so hard because you've been friends for so long. We were friends for a really, really long time. And she was literally the closest person to me. We were neighbours, you know, we, we never flat shared, but we, we lived in the same building in London. And um, I was having, I struggled a lot with those emotions when I was a mum. You struggle with emotions anyway as a new mum, but I struggled a lot with that. And um, then the same thing happened with another friend, a mutual friend of ours who also had a baby and that friendship disappeared as well. And it took that for me to realize that it wasn't all about me and the choices that I had made to have a child. It was all about her. Yeah, exactly. Not wanting to be friends with people who had children because of what that brought out in her. her. So I, yeah, so I mourned the loss of the friendship very much. It was like an active real grief for many years until I realized that it's just, the way that she reacted and the choices that she made in her life to maybe protect herself or whatever, whatever it is, the reasons. Uh, and it's, it was saddening that that was the end of the friendship. It was, it needn't be that way. But I think one thing that's amazing about women is how much compassion we can bring to the table. And the fact, even like hearing you talk about this, I'm like, oh, you have so much compassion for her. Like it's, it's amazing that even though, obviously like and I've lost a friend like that and you're it can feel like having like a limb cut off like it can be so Mm. difficult but you still have so much compassion for her and I think that that's the the most important thing is like when people ask me those questions I'm just like yeah like obviously initially I'm kind of like oh this is yeah kind of I have obviously some shakiness around this and I feel weird sometimes about it but fundamentally I'm very confident in that decision but I try and instead of letting it like shake me and get to me yeah flip that around and be like well maybe something's going on for them that would require them to to act this way like it's more about them than it is about me like people's reactions and feelings are their business not mine that's something my mom always says and I think that that's actually a really good a really good life motto. <laughs> yeah, she's a very clever lady because that took me quite quite a few years to yeah, to, to realize that that's yeah that it's me actually too. not about you. It's it's about them, and then they that they can own that, but you shouldn't have to bear that as well. So having failures and successes is obviously a huge part of being an entrepreneur and a business owner. And you have many accolades to your name. I could read them out, but you've been named 2020 EU top 50 woman entrepreneur finalist, digital women nominated you uh, in two categories this year. There's loads of accolades with the PhD and everything, but what in your life are you the most proud of? Oh my goodness, that's a very good question. I think that to this day, I still am really proud of, of moving to London and and being able to make a, a life here. Um, at the at the time, I was twenty two um, when I first came here, and I had absolutely like no support from anybody. I did it completely myself, and you know, sitting ten years later and looking back at that, I I can see how that might not feel like such a big deal. But at the time, it was really crazy that I was able to pay off all my student debt, that I was um, able to save up enough money, and that I had the confidence to quit a stable full-time job, even though I did not enjoy it, to be like, oh, I'm going to go and get my master's degree, and who the hell knows how I'm going to earn money. (laughs) 
um, I'm still so proud of having the belief in myself to to do that and to, to overcome, I mean, the fear that I had at the time, which putting myself back there, I just remember how anxious I was, particularly because I was from a family that just could not see. Um, the, my, my mom was definitely supportive. She said, you know, do whatever makes you happy. But she was just like, I don't really understand why you would throw in the towel on a very stable job. And do you really need a master's degree and all these things? But I, I still did what I felt was right. And I, I am on this path today because of that. So yeah, it sets the foundation. You, I mean, it's it's quite impressive actually to do something like that at such a young age and to have the conviction and the clarity actually of knowing that this is what I choose to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen, but I choose to do this because I know that that is not serving me. Yeah, so exactly. it says a lot about your direction for your life and how active you are in sort of seeking out what's right for you and also living with fears and things that are uncomfortable because yeah. that is a that is a, a skill to have in life I think and it serves you as an entrepreneur and I always believe and I I felt like this from a very young age I I danced a lot growing up and I think that this is probably a a outgrowth of that but I always felt that I grew best slightly outside of my comfort zone not so far that I'm like in fight or flight like I can't absorb anything but just you know ooh, like this stretch is like hurting me a little bit too much or ooh, like I've been on point maybe five minutes longer than I was yesterday and for whatever reason that that endurance that was more physical has kind of um gone into my my working life and I've really been able to apply that and even though I've been sat outside of my comfort zone, I mean, let's be honest, now that I own my own business every single hour of every single day, <laughs> exactly. I, I look at that as like, that's amazing. I get to grow and I get to learn from that rather than like, oh, this is scary. And I, I, I know now too that I've been doing this for so long, that like whatever situation is thrown at me, I will still like the sun will rise the next day. I will still be able to eat my dinner. Like I, I have the confidence to know that nothing is life shattering and earth shattering. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. Where there's successes, there is inevitably failures. And yes. I would argue that we actually learn more from the failures than we 100%. do from the successes. Uh, it creates resilience. And I always think of failures as if we don't experience them, then how can we possibly become resilient towards them? So I embrace them. It's my life philosophy mm-hmm. to em- embrace uh, embrace failure. Can you um, tell me something about some of your failures or one example you want to bring up of, of an, a failure in your life and what, what that taught you? Yeah, so um, oh, I've had so, so many, but I think that one of the, the biggest failures is actually, I can share this, um, I think I'm going to shut down time. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while and I think that the time has come that I am really ready to commit 100% to just the services arm of the company. So it's great to have my eye on scaling and I still do want to do something with that. But now um, I just have learned that being a tech entrepreneur is not not for me. Um, Sitting in those rooms of conversations of how can I 10x your investment is not for me. And we could look at that as failure um, because I am probably going to close down the business. Maybe I'll sell it, but not for not for a lot. But I am choosing to look at that as, okay. I've tried something new and I've realized that it's absolutely not what I want to be doing. And that's okay. I'm going to go back and focus on what I want to be doing and what I'm good at. I think that's that's wonderful. And I think the thing that we can do with 
failures or however you choose to label them is to reframe them mm -hmm. and say, without doing this, I wouldn't have had that experience. Yes. I wouldn't have known, you know, what it was like to do it. And now I know, you know, and it's actually one of my, my favorite Maya Angelou's quotes as well, where she said, I did then what I knew how to do. And now that I know better, I do better. And I love that because that is about self-compassion. It is about forgiveness to yourself. And it's about saying, you know, uh, it was okay what I did then, but now I know different. A hundred percent. And also coming back to what we were talking about, about the experience that people bring to the table in hiring conversations that I have, I'm always so skeptical when I ask someone about failure and they don't, um, they don't seem to want to share about a failure because while failure may seem unpleasant or may feel unpleasant at the time, it is part of life experience and it is part of, as you say, like the resilience that you can bring to the table. It helps grow your confidence. And so I actually think it's super important to reflect on your failures and really like sit in them, let yourself feel what it is you need to feel and may feel a little uncomfortable, but that's all part and parcel of actually being a fully well-rounded person and actually as well, bringing some really great professional expertise to the table. If you're like, oh, I tried that and it didn't work so well. So I think that really being able to couch that in, here are the learnings that I had from that, but here's how that makes me better, could only enrich you both from a personal, but also a professional standpoint. Absolutely. Very wise words from a wise lady. Thank you so <laughs> much, Kalila, for having this conversation with me today. It's been so lovely to get to know you better and also find out about your journey and long may it continue. Thank you so much for having me. And it just, um, as always, it's just so nice to, to talk with you. I hope we can get a coffee soon in real life now that things are opening up. That's the plan. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to Unprecedented Women with me, Jess Audsley. If you've been inspired by this conversation, I would love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Believe it or not, it really does help. Keep in touch on Instagram, my favorite platform, and let me know your thoughts. You can find me at rocksocial underscore. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time for more chats with unprecedented women.